Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Doc Stoll, and welcome to New Books and Jazz. Today we're speaking with jazz scholar Dr. Catherine Tackley about her new book, Benny Goodman's Famous 1938 Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert, published by Oxford University Press, 2011. Catherine discusses the concert in the context of the times, the individual performances, the performers, the critical reception, the subsequent release of the double album 12 years later in 1950, in short, the process of the canonization of the Carnegie Hall concert. It's a fascinating look back at the arrangements and performances in the concert itself and the evolution of musical acts of creation, but also at how jazz history can be deliberately shaped by those who participate in it, write about it, and market it. It's a book that can be read and appreciated on many levels. Here's the interview. This is Doc Stull with New Books and Jazz, and I'm delighted to have Catherine Tackley with me, who is the author of a wonderful book. The title of that book is Benny Goodman's Famous 1938 Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert, published by Oxford University Press 2012. I've been listening to a lot of Benny Goodman, Catherine, but and you play Benny Goodman. You actually wrote in your book that you sat in front of scrutinizing academics while you tried to reproduce some of his songs. Is that correct with your That's- big band? That's absolutely true. Yes, I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment when it comes to that, really. But um, yeah, I've, I've had a big band of my own now for for just over ten years, and it's 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 kind of like a bit of a hobby of mine um, in a way. But what it is great for is um, obviously doing these academic projects, um, being able to actually try some things with the band, and trying to get a sense of what it's like to play the music. You know, even in our, our own sort of, I mean, it's not a professional group; it's just a group of people that that enjoy playing together, really. Um, but certainly being able be able to do that and you know as that happens um I'm a clarinetist as well, although um, a classically trained one sort of moved into jazz and actually having the opportunity to obviously sort of transcribe and play some of the solos, um, the Goodman solos, um, is, is fantastic. And it only really kind of gives you more of an insight into, into that music and, and you know, what's a great, what actually was a great clarinetist he is, which I, I think people sometimes don't quite appreciate enough, actually. Tell me a little bit about your background, how you got involved in music, let the listeners know about you. Sure, sure. Well, I'm from uh, South London, uh, born in South London, about 10 miles outside uh, outside the capital, and uh, um, learned to play the clarinet from a, a fairly early age. My sort of inspiration there, there's a competition over here run by the BBC called Young Musician of the Year, and um, I was I was quite young when uh, a clarinetist called Emma Johnson uh, won that competition, and that was quite influential on my sort of choice of instrument, really, and, uh, um, you know, learned the clarinet and really, really, really loved it. But it was it wasn't really until I got um, into the, the sixth form, so over here that's when you're about sort of 16 um, and you're starting to study for your A-levels and think about 
you know, obviously what you're going to want, uh, want to do in life. Um, that I, um, I encountered a fantastic jazz educator um, who s- sadly died a couple of years ago um, called Will Michael. And he was amazing and uh, really sort of got me started and in being interested in jazz. And there was a whole group of us um, at school and literally people would be coming and going, have you heard of this Miles Davis person? You know, have you heard of this John Coltrane? And so people were sort of buying CDs and bringing them in and we were sitting around and listening to this stuff and, and, uh, it was like a whole new world really um, and we, we sort of played jazz together as well and so that was very sort of formative I think and, and inspirational um, being able to have those sorts of experiences and get a little bit of kind of um, jazz education at a, at a time when really it wasn't all that common in the schools over here um, you know, I think it's maybe become a little bit more sort of mainstream now, which I think is great. Um, and then I went on from from there after after school and went went off to university. I studied at the University of York um, in the in the northeast of England, um, and that was a an all round kind of music degree. But again, sort of managed to hook up. There was a um, lecturer there at that time called David Kershaw, who was very much into all sorts of music, a real kind of omnivore, I think, um, but jazz being one of them. And uh, he ran the big band at the university at that time and uh, really encouraged me um, in my academic um, interest in jazz, um, as well as getting involved in the performing side as well. So sort of studied a little, a little bit of um, jazz during my uh, undergraduate uh, degree. Um, then after that, I sort of decided that I, I was probably quite keen to carry on in academia, but at the same time, um, I, I kind of wanted to come out of that world for a little bit and experience something of, of the real world. And so I was a music teacher for a couple of years. And obviously, one of the things that I, I was able to do there was to um, start jazz and um, in, in the schools that I worked in and uh, work with work with pupils on uh, developing their jazz skills and obviously particularly the big band thing which is something that I'm very interested in and then um, went back to study for a PhD at City University in London um, and again at that time I guess jazz studies we're sort of talking about the the end of the 90s really jazz studies sort of getting going here and there were a, f- a few people sort of doing it but it's not it's really quite a thriving scene over here in terms of the academia now but it wasn't quite the same then I don't think um, so I went to study with um, an ethnomusicologist um, named Jerry Farrell whose um, real interest was um, Indian um, music but was also a jazz guitarist so had sort of strong interests in jazz and ran sort of jazz courses there at the university as well and uh, that was a fantastic time really um, and that, that PhD was on jazz in Britain and that was my first book um, which was published in 2005 by Ashgate um, The Evolution of Jazz in Britain um, and that was based, based on my, my PhD uh, thesis um, so I hope, hope this is all kind of uh, informative you sort of see where I'm coming from a, a, a bit with it I, I guess um, and then went on after that um, and got my my first uh, full-time job in academia which was at Leeds College of Music um, which is a conservatoire again based in the north of England but had a really strong uh, specialism in jazz and always has done in fact since the 1960s one of the first jazz courses um, available in higher education um, in this in this country so I was very privileged to work there for a number of years and and um, to teach on the academic side of things with students that 
most of whom were, uh, were, were more interested in uh, performance and composition, I guess, but um, also met some very inspirational students there as well who were pursuing some um, very high standard academic work. Um, so that, that was a really fantastic experience, I think, being able to work with performers on academic projects um, and all sorts of other things as well. And I think I should mentioned I guess at that point um, that was where I met um, Tony Whiten, Professor Tony Whiten who's now at the University of Salford and uh, again he was a real encouragement to me in my career and my aspirations in jazz musicology um, and he's, uh, he's, he's just got um, a book about to come out also um, with Oxford on John Coltrane uh, but his first book with Cambridge actually Jazz Icons is out, is out now so um, you know real mainstay of the jazz studies scene over here so I, I think I was uh, very fortunate to encounter him there as well um, and then about four four and a half years ago I finally made my final move um, to the Open University where I where I am today um, which is a completely different sort of institution uh, and I don't know how much is, is known about it necessarily in the States but it's an entirely distance learning um, institution so uh, all of our students are based all around the country and, and we generate uh, material that is then delivered locally by a network of tutors so it's quite a different uh, proposition uh, but nice to bring jazz into that environment as well. One of the things that was so interesting to me when I read your book was that I had always been under the assumption that this was the first jazz concert in Carnegie Hall. And in fact, jazz concerts had been going on, I think you, you wrote in your book, all the way back to 1912, and that Fats Waller had played there, and that a number of musicians, jazz musicians, had played in Carnegie Hall well before Benny Goodman's famous concert. Well, yeah, I think the, 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 the jazz concert itself has a very long history. In fact, people sort of view uh, the Benny Goodman one really as the, as the first one. But there was a whole sort of network of concerts that, that were going on, you know, even sort of in what you might call a sort of pre-jazz era. But this idea about sort of bringing what might be the vernacular music into that mainstream uh, was a project of many people before Goodman and his management maybe had that idea. Um, so it's fascinating to kind of go back and 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 look at some look at some of those precedents for for the jazz concert and in, you know the the idea about that what we might term these days a kind of crossover uh, between a sort of classical presentation but with more popular music um, was, was not necessarily a, a new one and there's nothing, there's nothing new under the sun as they say but yeah. uh, certainly you know Goodman's concert has that sort of special status for many other reasons but I, I think it's quite helpful to view it as part of uh, a longer kind of heritage and history of, of this sort of presentation, I think. I think you mentioned early that in 1912, in fact, with integrated um, audience, a group played uh, jazz numbers there. I just thought that was a great piece of history to, to start out your book. So tell us what was so remarkable or unremarkable at the time about Benny Goodman's playing in Carnegie Hall? Well, I think... What really struck me, having looked at all, all of this stuff for, for quite a while, is what really struck me was the, was the publicity element of it, um, which, again, I think 
um, there's always been a temptation to say, oh, and, and Goodman had these sort of great ideas for who he wanted to be as a musician, what he wanted jazz to be, and therefore, you know, he put it in Carnegie Hall. But I think hopefully what, what the book has revealed in some ways is is this idea that, you know, behind every every star as today, um, there's this kind of uh, almost like a sort of publicity machine that maybe comes up with, with these sorts of ideas. And they don't come up, up with them, you know, in complete isolation from the artist, but that was a real kind of driving force behind this whole event and it was basically as intended initially as a, as a publicity um as a publicity opportunity for the radio show that Goodman was on at the time um and the fact that it actually fitted in quite nicely with his sort of evolving plans as to who he wanted to be as an artist I think was was uh, fortuitous as as well as um no doubt sort of influenced by him as well um so that I think is one of the one of the things that really sort of stands out for me above above all at the at the end of the day is, is this sort of idea that the whole plan was a very much a combined effort um so that was kind of where i tried to start out in the first part of the book is is looking at kind of where the idea had come from and and how it sort of rolled on in that sort of snowball effect to become this this great event um which certainly for the people that were there it it, it did have a, a big impact at the time um but maybe what is equally as fascinating is it, it that it sort of faded into rel- relative insignificance almost almost immediately it was just another concert and it wasn't really until later on when uh, obviously they found the discs and the record was released and coinciding with this idea about you know about how important jazz was and how important it is to document the history of jazz that then the Carnegie Hall concert maybe came into came into its own as a sort of linchpin of jazz history if you like right so it took 12 years the concert was in 1938 and the the album was released in 1950 um i wanted to go back i thought it was interesting when you talked about the young people and the different kinds of dancers slash listeners the jitterbuggers the ickies is that how you pronounce it and the okays i thought that was fascinating yeah Something actually I read in David Stowe's book, um, again, I think that's how he pronounce his name, um, about Big Band Jazz. Uh, I think it's Big Band Jazz and New Deal America, isn't it? Um, and, and that sort of typology of, of different ways in which audiences were interacting with jazz um, struck me as fascinating and it maps so directly onto the sort of things that Goodman was involved in sort of pre and around about the time of Carnegie Hall. Uh, you know, he was playing still in these massive dance venues for essentially a dancing public but the, at the same time you had these people that were that were kind of um, transfixed by the band and knew kind of every note of every arrangement and wanted to hear you know what's Harry James going to do on it tonight and this sort of thing and standing around the bandstand and, and listening um, and, and then plus the, the, the more sort of self-conscious uh, postures you know the people that were hanging out there because it was a cool thing to do um, all that going on at the same time I found absolutely fascinating and I think it kind of demolishes if we've got any temptation of saying you know big band the big band era the 30s swing was all about dancing and that bebop is all about listening um certainly from the swing point of view it sort of 
questions that and challenges it I think and demolishes it um and, and I know it's in in sort of many books including David Stowe's and you know that's one of the things that that he does but I think with Goodman in particular who was of course you know the the king of swing as 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 it was sort of self-proclaimed almost um to sort of question you know what that music was doing for people and why they were coming to it and how they were reacting to it um I found incredibly interesting and I think all that stuff again it provides a precedent for Carnegie Hall that it wasn't maybe quite as unusual as we might think for people and really listen seriously to Goodman you know that was it was all it was all part of what they did you know um so that was kind of how I how I came at it that way really and Goodman himself was kind of conscious of these you know different kinds of listeners as as well as the appeal of certain numbers and the personalities you go into a little bit about the uh, Gene Krupa and how Krupa left the band uh, soon after the Carnegie Hall concert and how he he provided the rhythmic drive but at the same time it tended to take away a little of the attention from Goodman's artistry and I know that wasn't a, a seminal part of your book but it was just fascinating that Goodman himself dealing with all these different social forces from the outside as well as a kind of his own art artistic direction. Yeah, I mean, I think he had reading about what he said about jitterbugging, you know, and it's sort of extreme form and these sort of, again, sort of extreme fan behaviours, you know. I mean, he could clearly see that it was good for business. I mean, uh, that's one thing that, you know, getting to know sort of Goodman's career and how he was a little bit um, as, as well, uh, you know, as well as you're able to do, um, you know, from the surviving sort of testimony and whatever. Um, but he was a, he was a great businessman and he, he, he knew what was, was popular and to a, to a certain extent that sort of dictated the, some of the choices he made in his, in his career. Um, but, you know, at the, at the same time, he's, um, he, he found it irritating um, some of the, the ways that the audience kind of interfered with the performance in what he perceived as quite a negative way, sort of disrupted things. And, um, and there's, there's this, one of the sort of contemporary art articles that um, that, I, that I read in the course of researching this about you know the fans trying to get a, literally get a piece of them so they were trying to grab whatever they could off the stage and this sort of thing I mean how often that happened it's maybe hard to tell but you know that sort of extreme fan behavior that maybe now we'd associate with I don't know something like the Beatles or more modern pop groups you know a, a, again you can see the roots of it there which is which is fascinating but again, as you were saying, with the, the sort of uh, the different personalities in the band, it's quite sort of fascinating that sort of introverted and extroverted thing uh, with, um, you know, maybe Harry James and Gene Krupa definitely sort of playing to the crowd in that sort of way. But Goodman being a bit more, no, I'm standing here, I'm doing my thing, you know, you, you, you pay attention to me, <laughs> um, a, a sort of opposite, opposite way around. And um, I mean, one of the things I did, in the book was talk about um you know the performances is really sort of um representing those sorts of tensions that were very real at that precise time chronologically and then looking at the band by the end of the year it was it was a different band you know sort of really key people had had decided to leave and some of that was because Goodman put an immense amount of pressure I think on his side then having achieved that position of kind of dominance in that market if you want to put it that way that he had done I think sort of then after that um, he wanted to maintain that he didn't want to l let that slip and I think again reading his 
autobiography which um which dates from just after Carnegie Hall it really sort of gives you an insight into that that he's saying look I've got this status now as a king of swing and that's all well and good but how long is this going to last I can't expect it to last forever he was very sort of sanguine about that um so he really wanted to make the most of it while while he could um so there's all these sorts of tensions just under the surface really um and I, I think when you sort of investigate one event in a lot of detail, it sort of brings those themes out uh, in quite a nice sort of way. And, you know, I hope other people might want to sort of come along and do more work on Goodman, actually, um, and sort of pick pick up some of those those themes and, you know, in necessary kind of contradict me um, uh, when, when they find sort of different things about different areas of uh, Goodman's career, because there's, uh, I think there's an immense amount of, of potential for more research in that area. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book, and I certainly got ex- extremely interested in that in reading it. And one of the values of, of your book, there, there's so many different strands to it, but one of the things I enjoyed so much is just your investigation of those individual songs that they played and the evolution of those songs, how they came about and how they were played afterwards and you're really talking about the act of creation and how that how malleable and changeable they were and that we tend to fixate on that recording of the performance but in fact those songs were different every time they were played and when when you had different uh different people in the band so i thought that was just a great great bit of detective work and you just got a lot of insight about the 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 creation of, of music and jazz I think um, quite early on I decided that that was how to do it because, you know, you've got these performances on record that we now listen to and we go, wow, you know, that was when they played at Carnegie Hall. But kind of getting beyond that in any way, um, I think it's quite it's quite difficult, actually. How do we, how do we know what, you know, how, how their performance of a particular number, you know, was a response to the particular situation that they found themselves in on that night? Or was it just the run of the mill? Or was this performance kind of seminal on the way that they played the number afterwards and that sort of thing? So I really wanted to sort of put those Carnegie Hall performances in some sort of context. Was it just like another gig but in a huge room? Or was it more than that? And did it influence the way that they that they played things and the way that they thought about the performance? I mean, the famous quote is, um, is a Harry James one, or it's attributed to him anyway, that, that apparently before they went onto the stage, he said, I feel like a, I feel like a prostitute in church or something um you know and certainly there was get a feeling that there there was that sort of degree of 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 apprehension so it was it was more than a run-of-the-mill gig but at the same time they were playing this very mostly very familiar music um so it's that sort of interplay that i wanted to, to 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 look at i suppose and try and work out what so what are these performances actually uh beyond just a record of what happened on one night um, so a sort of methodological sort of decision I, I made was to try and listen to all the recordings of each of the numbers from around that time that I could get my hands on, basically. And I mean, I should definitely attribute here, as I do in the book, the work of D. Russell Connor, who's Goodman's uh, discographer and has published, I think, uh, I think it's it's sort of two two volumes um, of um, in 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 the most sort of recent versions of Goodman biodiscography, as he calls it. So it's not just the released studio takes, but it's anything that he's ever heard that has been bootlegged and people send him this stuff from all around the world, you know, that they bootlegged from the radio. So what you get from that is a really complete 
I mean, as complete as we'll ever have, uh, sort of history of not only the amount of traveling and gigs that the band were doing, but pretty much also what they were playing in terms of repertoire. Um, so you can look at that in terms of spotting patterns as well. But what's great about the, these books, these Connor books, is that obviously they then... Um, he then cites where you can actually go and hear this stuff and some of it is just on bootleg tapes. Obviously that's not particularly accessible and I did think about going down the road of um of, of trying to sort of look up all this stuff from from fans or whatever. But I thought, well in the end, if people are reading the book and they want to kind of replicate the experience I've gone through as a researcher, I've got to use stuff that is actually available. Um so the rarest I've gone is kind of some uh, releases from kind of the 70s of some sort of outtakes and that and that kind of stuff but then at least you can get a sort of sweep of uh of, of performances over uh, mo in most cases from kind of around about 1935 36 through to just after sort of 1939 um of these different numbers that were included in carnegie hall you have a great sidelight about how everybody went to the Savoy Ballroom afterwards, and it was Chick Webb and uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Count Basie and Billie Holiday right after the concert. So there was no end to this, right? You, you, yeah. you took off and you went to the Savoy Ballroom and you had this, this wild big band contest. I found that fascinating. What was most fascinating about that is it was an advertised program in the Carnegie program. So it's almost kind of in the audience, right, okay, if you like that, then off you go. It's almost then go and hear it in it real environment is a sort of slight implication that you know this the Carnegie Hall thing is all a bit sort of staged and now come and hear what it what it's really like and I think people were uh at the time certainly jazz fans I mean talk a bit about the sort of the whole rhythm club scene and whatever um at, at around about that time which was was such a becoming such a kind of I mean political with a with a small p mostly but you know these ideas about what jazz should be, uh, what jazz performance should be, and what are the appropriate environments uh, for staging jazz performances, and um, and what are the appropriate ways of listening to jazz? You know, the the, the concerts that the uh, Chicago Rhythm Club put on. I mean, they talk about you know, if anyone dared to get up and dance, then they would be told to sit down. You know, um, so it's, it's that those sorts of so, sorts of attitudes. So it's sort of steering people in. In, in, in the right direction. What were critics saying about this Benny Goodman concert at the time uh, after after they reviewed the concert itself? I think what was so interesting at the time is that most of the reviewers that picked it up were um, people that were writing for the for the you know the mainstream New York press um, and, and 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 some of the other the presses, but mainly the New York press. And of course, they were classical music critics. So the focus for them was really on the whole spectacle rather than necessarily so much on the music itself. Mm. So the whole idea about swinging the concert hall was was what they were sort of writing about in, in, in many ways and what they were interested in. Many of them ran previews. Um, you know, pr obviously prior to the prior to the event, and that was what they were sort of focusing on. It wasn't it wasn't about oh, I wonder what Benny Goodman will play, oh, I wonder what sort of solo Harry James will do. It wasn't that wasn't part of it. It was more of a kind of wider social and cultural uh, thing that they were interested in and asking questions about kind of you know like where jazz fits within a sort of a national culture in a sense uh, was what they were sort of getting at in their in their previews and to a certain extent with the with the reviews as well um i think some of them were a bit baffled by what they heard to be honest i mean it's sort of 
in a way it was sort of outside their scheme of reference I'm sure not as kind of regular people that would listen to radio or whatever but in terms of how to approach uh, the music critically um all that all they could do in a sense that the classical guys was to was to fall back on on what they would normally normally do and so talk about things like you know intonation and balance and and that sort of, that sort of stuff so, so that was sort of one one side of it um and on the other side, of course, you've got the, the specialist press, like like Downbeat, for example, uh, that the re- reviewing it and uh, you know being being quite perceptive. Um, but from that sort of side of things, and from a certain extent, uh, from the fans as well, there was almost a certain amount of disappointment in that this event had been built up into something that was going to be so sort of huge and groundbreaking. But at the same time, Goodman just played his regular stuff. You know, one of them said it's just what we can hear at the Manhattan Room, you know, every, you know, virtually every night, you know, or or regularly. Um, So they're almost a bit disappointed that there weren't more kind of special moments. They said, oh, you know, we know what Sing 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 is. We know how that goes. We know what to expect. Um, So there's almost a certain amount of of disappointment, you know, which is that was quite surprising to me to find that out. You know, you you expect everyone to sort of rave about it, certainly on the basis of how it's been written about retrospectively. But it, it wasn't necessarily necessarily the case. But it it was the scene, it was the event ultimately that seemed to be important. The fact that you fixed this in a time and place, and when this record album is released 12 years later, things looking behind, looking backwards, looked a little differently. I thought uh, it would be interesting to, to talk about that. Why did they release this in 1950? What was the hope of Columbia when they released it? And then how did it change our perception of jazz when this when this concert was released to the public? Well, I, I, I mean, I think um, from looking at where Goodman had come to in his career by that point, he'd, he'd changed record labels. He'd had a go at, uh, at, at a bebop, which hadn't really gone sort of well for him and then he'd had this diversion into really focusing on the classical side of his um of his career and then sort of coming coming back to to jazz and uh trying to get another record deal um it seemed like that these uh these acetates that had been unearthed um and exactly how that that came about you know again i'm sort of going to that a bit more detail in the book but there's several theories on that but anyway he had these acetates of the the concert in his possession and he saw the these as a, as a way of obviously getting getting back in uh with with a sort of major record deal having done these other things um and so I, I think that was in a way it fitted in very well with with goodman's career and as i say in the book um which was primarily after that sort of based on this kind of nostalgic um uh nostalgic way way of way of being and sort of um going back to those sort of what you might sort of turn years or whatever um and the way that swing was regarded was you know it changed you know quite a lot in in 12 years and again i think a lot of that is a kind of an awareness of uh jazz history and um being able to kind of uh, delineate that to make a sort of linear chronology and certainly from a kind of scholarly point of view that was when all that all that sort of stuff was taking off and you get sort of some key publications there as well um so I, I think that was probably all part of it as well there was clearly a market again for this for this sort of stuff um either for people in 
answering it and you you know that's what the, the swing era the, the golden sort of fable swing era it sounds like or for people sort of reliving their youth I guess um, as sort of nostalgia tends to function in, in popular culture so you know there was there was no doubt that he was onto onto a winner there um, I think it also the album also quite aligns quite nicely with the whole idea about sort of live concert recording um, sort of as espoused by the jazz at the Philharmonic grad um so it it just it just seems to fit so nicely into that particular period in terms of what was going on in in jazz um really which i I think is probably that the root of white did so well at that sort of particular juncture uh yeah you alluded to kind of a creation myth of how the recordings came about there are different stories of, of how they came about so let's pick up Catherine the 1950 recording this was a a landmark in terms of production tell us a little bit about the uh, the release and uh, what what the release of that concert in 1950 meant in terms of how we look at the history of jazz I mean, I think it was it was really important. I mean, as as I said before, it sort of coincided with a number of sort of different developments that were that were going on in jazz. Not least, you know, these attempts to try and understand its understand its 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 history. Um, so I, I I think in that way it fitted in really well, as well as with, with the uh, revival of, uh, of of Goodman's career. And of course, by this point, you're you're talking about the the sort of multi figs and modernist debate. And in many ways, as I say in the book, the you know swing aligned itself in in different ways there and was uh, somewhere was in some ways was sort of somewhere somewhere in between because it wasn't it wasn't either the sort of trad jazz sort of thing or the um or or, or the kind of uh, modernist uh, kind kind of kind of thing either um so in a way it had been sort of canonized into an almost apolitical um position in in in, in some ways um which meant that, of course, it had a very kind of core, almost sort of mainstream following, I guess, even 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 still. And I, I suppose it's one thing that that is fascinating about the history of jazz that even though maybe sort of new movements come come along and take over and become popular and whatever, then everything else is sort of still going on underneath. So you just get this sort of layering uh, effect, which is sort of how I how I view it anyway. So just because B-Watts come along doesn't mean that swing all of a sudden stops and that people completely stop playing big band music, although, of course, there are economic factors that there, there as well. Um, but at various points, there's been a sort of resurgence. And... I think this idea about nostalgia is, is just a, such a powerful one uh, for, for people. The idea about kind of being able to relive your youth. It's been very interesting actually for me since the book's been out that the number of people have approached me and said, oh, it's great having this book because I've always used this recording and that moment in my in my teaching of, of jazz history uh, and in some cases of uh, 20th century American history as well, um, but have never really um, sort of necessarily had the... Um, uh, the, the sort of uh, primary material kind of to, to hand to, to, to do it with. And I think it, it, it sort of speaks to the, the, the value that the, that the recording and the event um, has uh, acquired within uh, an idea of sort of constructing jazz history. And I think for, for me, a really crucial text on this was uh, Scott DeVoe's uh, article on the emergence of the jazz concert, which I think he contextualizes it really, really nicely. But I think to sort of pull that out and then and then look at look at those themes and uh, and 
and and how it kind of relates to the the way that jazz canon and history has been uh, constructed and also how we relate to um sort of things from our past again that sort of nostalgic element um i i, I that's what i've tried to do anyway and so i i, I hope it i hope it might be useful for all those people that do use it in their teaching in that way um so um as as well as people that are you know have obviously got a, a really strong interest in 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 benny goodman and and his music and the swing era you know so um hopefully it's hopefully it's useful well i i think it was an absolutely marvelous read and i listened to the concert uh many times after well, actually during your book when you were talking about the different musical numbers and kind of the changes and what to look for and whatever mm. uh, i really enjoyed it. i actually gained a, a tremendous appreciation for uh for benny goodman and and the side people in his orchestra too after reading your mm. book and and really mm. listening critically i love the music uh but uh yeah, I, yeah. I, I gained a, a much more critical appreciation of it so uh you're a prolific person i mean you you play music you're on all kinds of, of boards and doing all kinds of things uh what projects are you working on now well just at the moment i'm literally right in the middle of uh writing a chapter on um black jazz musicians in london uh, around about world war Two and just after world war Two. and in particular i'm writing about a band called uh that was led by uh, ken snake hips johnson who was actually a dancer uh, mainly made up of west indian musicians black west indian musicians and also black British um, resident, British-born musicians, and um, coincidentally, these um, this band uh, um, has uh, achieved a kind of notorious status just recently as um, uh, the sort of basis for a BBC series called Dancing. I think it's called Dancing Through. Dancing through time uh, on, on BBC Two, which is a, uh, a sort of a drama documentary, kind of very loosely based around that band. So it just so happens, uh, just as I was writing on that, then then that's just come out as well. So that is going to be that's very interesting to, to watch and see how that how, see how that emerges. Uh, so that's what I'm working on just now. Um, in terms of big projects, uh, jazz-related ones, um, I'm just reviving uh, some work I was doing on Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, which I know a lot of people have a, a, a fair bit of interest in. What I'm really interested in, again, it's sort of bringing the recording element into that, is how uh, that piece has been disseminated on record, uh, particularly, including in all its many arrangements played by everyone from Glenn Miller, um, and there's Marcus Roberts' really re recent version of it, and uh, all sorts of pop versions uh, by by all all sorts of different uh, different groups, um, familiar, strange disco versions, all the rest of it. So again, it's it's looking at that classical jazz relationship um, and looking at the role that recording has and disseminating that so that's kind of my next long-term uh, project that's on the cards just now and uh, finally just as a kind of side um, issue to, to jazz uh, in some ways anyway um, I'm running a research network uh, which is called Atlantic Sounds Ships and Sailor Towns which is about music and uh, transatlantic travel and migration um, which is basically hosting a number of events to bring academics together that have interest in those areas, uh, not only musicologists but historians, people involved in museum profession, um, basically anyone that's that's interested in those in those themes. And so I'm hoping that that might develop into um, some more work looking at uh, music on and music and travel and uh, tourism 
uh, particularly to do with the sea. So that's a sort of, um, it involves jazz, but it sort of moves outside a little bit uh, as well. So uh, there's, there's plenty going on, that's for sure. <laughs> Kat- Catherine, I'm exhausted. That's a lot going on for uh, an English woman from South London. That's really remarkable. But you have a fan in Northern California here. Just a wonderful book. Let me give the listeners the, the title of the book again. Benny Goodman's famous 1938 Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert. We've been speaking with Dr. Catherine Tackley. Thank you so much, Catherine. I love your delightful musical uh, British accent. I could listen to that all day. The book published by Oxford University Press. Thanks so much for your patience on the technical issues here and thoroughly enjoyed the interview and thoroughly enjoyed the book. Brilliant. That's great. Thanks very much for asking me to do it. I really appreciate that. All right. Great talking to you. You Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to New Books and Jazz with Doc Stoll. Today's delightful guest was Dr. Catherine Tackley from the Open University in London, England. Her book, Benny Goodman's famous 1938 Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert, published by Oxford University Press, 2002. Until the next New Books and Jazz podcast on the New Books Network, this is Doc Stoll.